a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor, and today we are here with my dear friend, Jody Brown. Jody, how are you? I am fabulous. Thank you so much. I love that you're always fabulous. I have only ever known Jody in this new chapter of her life. I didn't know her before the story that she's going to tell us today. Um, she's inspiring. She is resilience personified. And in my opinion, I've learned so much from her in um, this past three and a half years or so that I've been walking this journey. And Jody, we're just really excited for you to introduce yourself to us. Tell us your story. Walk us through where you've been, what you've learned, and how it is that even still you can tell us you are fabulous when a lot of people might look at the laundry list of what you have faced and are facing and say, I don't feel too fabulous. So we're really excited to learn from you and and have you share your story. So thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Truly, it is an honor. I'll start with one lesson right up front. That is that we all get to choose whether or not we're fabulous each day. And every day that we are still here, I believe we can find the opportunity to be grateful that we're here and find ways to become better instead of bitter from the things that we are going through. And so keep that in mind as we talk a little bit about my journey and as you hear a little of my story. But it is one of those lessons that while I learned it fairly early on, and it's probably something I've known throughout my life, I certainly had many, many opportunities to be reminded of that principle that we get to choose every day whether we are bitter or whether we are better. And I just made it a, uh, I made a pact with myself and with my God that I would choose to be better. And that is part of why I can say that I am fabulous today. So about a dozen years ago, I was living what I deemed to be my white picket fence life is what I call it now, where I was really in a situation that was exactly what I would have wanted when I was a little girl and told you what my goals and expectations for my life were, I was in that stage of life. I was married to a man that had become my best friend. We met on a semester abroad overseas while we were both going to school in Jerusalem. And we had an amazing experience together that just cemented the foundation of our lives together. We came home from that experience and got married shortly after and just started this incredible life adventure together. We both worked. We were exploring our careers and just getting our lives settled. And a few years in, decided to start having kids. And so by the time I was living my white picket fence life, I had four children and I was working from home as a, a nonprofit profit 
executive running some nonprofit group in our area and just really had a passion for what I did, loved my life, loved my relationship, adored my children and my husband. And I just thought things kind of couldn't get any better. I had finished my education to that point in time. I had received a master's degree as well as my undergraduate. I had gone on and gotten some certifications, was working in a field that I loved, and I had never known that I would give birth to my best friends. But as my little kids were starting to grow, I realized that they were incredible human beings. And I was just having a fun time raising my kids, working, feeling like I was contributing to society and the world around me, and had no complaints. I could have stayed living that white picket fence life forever. But what kind of story would that have been? (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't be on this show today, I will tell you that much. (laughs) Although so many, I was thinking, Michelle, how many of our guests that have been willing to share their stories back up with something that kind of starts white picket fancy. Right. Life right. looked so good. It felt right. so good. Everything was going so great. We felt like everything was Living in the rhythm. dream. Living yeah. the dream. And then, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So, all right. I guess, Jody, jump in. What happens next? Well, I think that in the process of living my white picket fence life, I was just doing normal things every day. And then there got to be a point in time where the normal things that I was doing started getting a little bit more challenging, and I couldn't understand why. I would go out in the mornings, get up before my kids would go to school and go with a couple of girlfriends in my neighborhood. And we would go jog around the neighborhood to get some exercise and to, you know, visit with each other before our crazy days started. And I realized that when I was running, I just was really, really struggling. Now, I'm not a runner. I never have been. So part of me wasn't sure if that was just that I was struggling with this newfound sport or if there was something else going on. But I started really having a hard time concentrating when I would run, just even putting one foot in front of the other. I felt like the world was just spinning around me, and I was very, very dizzy. But after a while, I realized that didn't stop even when I stopped running. Even when I came home and was able to sit down, I was still having the world spin around me and having these extreme dizzy spells. I ended up going to the doctor and was diagnosed with what was likely an inner ear infection, Those can sometimes be hard to diagnose, but they said it was the most likely scenario for someone who was young, healthy, active, and was having extreme dizzy spells. So I was told, you know, you just got to wait it out. You got to be patient. It will right itself in a while and you'll be back to normal. And over the course of the next month, as I was waiting for life to get back to normal, uh, I realized, you know, things just didn't quite get back to normal. So the white picket fence life, as good and wonderful as everything was, didn't disappear all at once. It was more a matter of step by step, things just started slipping away. And I couldn't figure out exactly why it was slipping away. I couldn't define it. In fact, it was so such small steps that it seemed to be leaving my life that I didn't even really tell anyone. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't confide in anyone. Maybe my sister and, of course, my husband knew that I was facing a few health struggles, but we had no idea what that meant. The reality was we were mostly just going about our day-to-day activities. The kids were going to school. My husband was going to work. I was uh, doing a combination of working from home and working in the office. And then I just started experiencing these crazy, crazy headaches that were not only significant in pain, but they were new to me. I have never been a headache person my whole life. And for the first time in my life, I was absolutely debilitated 
by these incredible headaches that were coming. And it was so strange to me to all of a sudden have these massive headaches. And so I went to the doctor again and talked to the doctor and told him that I was experiencing these massive headaches. And this time I was diagnosed with what was likely tension migraines. I remember the conversation when the doctor said, you know, you're a mom of four kids, you work a full-time job, you volunteer in your community and in your church and your kids' school. You have all of these things going on and you probably are experiencing some stress that is resulting in these tension migraines. And I thought, yep, that's probably exactly what it is. Life, although I loved it, had its moments of stress and had moments where it seemed like there was too much on my plate or there was more than I can do. So I, I really chalked it up to, yeah, probably tension migraines is the thing. So he gave me some medication in hopes that I could deal with the migraines when they came. And we just kind of moved on with life. So I just kept going and kept going until, again, a few months later, I realized that not only was that not getting better, but the earlier dizzy spells had not gotten better. The quote-unquote inner ear infection hadn't gone away, and I was still having these dizzy spells. So I was having the dizzy spells on top of the headaches, and every few weeks to a month, something new would add up. So I also started experiencing extreme bouts of vertigo, and then I started having ringing in my ears. And on days where the combination of these issues was intense, it was so overwhelming for me physically, I could hardly even walk down the hall because my mind just could not coordinate with my feet to be able to see in front of me. And I literally had to grip onto the banister in order to be able to walk down the hall. I had to get on my hands and knees and crawl. Jody, and how long ago was this and how old were you? So this was almost 13 years ago, and I was 32 years old at the time. Which is part of the reason. And how old were your kiddos? My kiddos, oh, my kiddos were between two and 10 years old. So my oldest was old enough that he was starting to really have a little bit of an understanding for the world. And, you know, he was in school. And and then my youngest was just a little toddler. And he was my cute little boyfriend that I got to spend my days with, you know, reading stories. But I imagine caring for them. I mean, if you can't walk down the hall, you certainly can't take care of a two-year-old all day and try to work and try to still volunteer. I, I mean, debilitating sounds like a very accurate word. And yet, and that not getting anywhere medically. We, yes, that was when we started really realizing, okay, something's got to be wrong and we've got to be able to figure it out. Because even trying to sit up and wrap Christmas presents for my kids, just sitting on the floor trying to wrap Christmas presents, I was so dizzy. I had to lay down and try and close my eyes in order to write myself. Wow. And even the small tasks of trying to read stories to my little guys got to be so overwhelming that my day-to-day activities, all sense of normalcy, all sense of that ease and beauty of that white picket fence just started to leave. And it started to leave quickly after a while. For the first several months, it was more slowly. And then after a course of you know, six or seven months, then it started to happen more quickly where it was getting harder and harder on a day-to-day basis. So how long, how many doctor's visits, how much time passes between you when you kind of start having these headaches and when somebody is able to tell you something besides, hey, it's just a headache and you're busy? That's a great question. And I often get asked 
you know, how do you know the difference between when you have something that you just need to wait and give it time versus when you need to go and see a doctor and figure out if there's something bigger going on? And what I can tell you now is that you need to be the best advocate for yourself because no one is going to be a better advocate for you and your health than you are. So take control and get in when you have something that you feel like you need to address. For me, it had been eight months from the time I first went into the doctor, letting him know that I had disease cells before we actually were able to start getting some answers. And the precipitous moment that finally got us to the point where we started demanding answers was that my husband came home from work one day and he could see that I wasn't doing well. And when he asked me how I was doing and I told him, you know, it was, it was not a good day. I'm having a hard time and I'm having a hard time taking care of the kids and making dinner and doing my work. He looked at me and probably with more vehemence than I had ever heard come out of his mouth. He said, Jody, something is wrong with you. And we have got to figure out what it is. And when I first heard that, there was that tender side of me that was like, ah, something is wrong with me. Like, but I knew in the same moment he wasn't, he wasn't insulting me. He was caring for me. He was worried. He was concerned. And he was stepping in and saying, no more taking it easy and taking the easy answers from the doctors. We've got to figure out what's going on. So I immediately called the doctor's office, told him I needed to come in again. And this time when I went in, I told him there is something going on and we really need to dig deeper and figure it out. So we started the process and we went through family histories and basic tests and did a physical and then a bunch of blood tests. And I remember about a week later getting the call from the doctor's office. Uh, the cute medical assistant who I've become good friends with called and said, hey, I just want to let you know your blood test came back normal, so everything is good. And I knew. You're like that. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jody. I knew, I knew, I knew everything was not good. And I just said to her with all the pleading in my voice, you know, Jill, I'm not good. I'm not good. Everything is not Okay. Something is wrong, and I need you to ask the doctor, what is the next step? So she quietly and quickly got off the line and went and talked to the doctor and came back on the phone a few minutes later and said, well, the doctor says the next step is an MRI of your brain. And they called and set up an appointment so that I would have an MRI done about three weeks later. And I was so grateful to just know that the process was starting, that something was going to happen that we were going to solve the problem and get life back to normal. Yeah, they were going to look further than just those those headaches. Just those few basic things, which, yeah. yes, can be indicators, but I knew they weren't enough to tell whatever story was going on. In my well, and like you said, it doesn't matter. Even if the blood work looks normal, clearly it's not the blood work we need to look at because you could tell it's not normal. I can't tell you how many times Michelle and I have interviewed guests who have had similar frustration with the medical system where they have said, you know, I had to really, really advocate for myself or for my child. It took test after test or doctor after doctor. And I'm I'm not pointing fingers in the fault of our medical system, but it just shows how you've got to be able to trust yourself. And, you know, if, if the blood work says you're normal, but you know, you're not normal, you're clearly not done 
taking tests. We're going to take a yes. quick break, Jody, and come back and have you tell us what happens after that next step, which clearly was not just to say, hey, your blood work looks normal. Everything's good. We'll be right back. Okay, great. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Okay, Jody, we are back. Your blood work looks normal. Your life is clearly not normal. Tell us what's next. Well, the interesting thing is that particular day was one of those days that was harder than most. One of those days where I was literally crawling on my hands and knees to get from room to room in my house. And as relieved as I was to know that the process was finally going and we were going to hopefully get an answer, there was something in my head that also told me, you can't wait three weeks. I felt like I could hardly survive one day at a time at that point. And the thought of waiting three more weeks to have the next test was just too overwhelming. So I crawled down the hall, went into my office, picked up the phone, and called the hospital where I was scheduled to have the MRI. And I talked to someone in the radiology department, and I said, I have this appointment. It's scheduled for three weeks. I'm supposed to have an MRI of my brain. But something is wrong, and I cannot wait three weeks. Is there any way you can get me in sooner? And the woman on the other end of the line, almost as though she were telling me a secret and kind of whispering it to me, looked at the schedule and said, well, if you come in early tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning, I can probably work you in before our first patient of the day. Would that work for you? And I was so relieved. Yes, yes, I'll be there 100%. I'll go. So I went, got up early the next morning, asked my husband if he could just go into work a few minutes late so that I could run over and have this test done. And honestly, I can tell you at that point in time, I really believed I was having an MRI simply to rule out that anything big was going on in my brain. You didn't have a sinking feeling that something bad was no. going on. Interesting. I, Interesting. I didn't. As much as there was something happening in my body, I wasn't thinking, Today, we're going to get the answers. I was thinking, we're going to okay, rule we'll more stuff this. out. Yes, we'll do this and we'll check it off the list and then we'll go to the next thing and we'll figure out what it is and I'll take a prescription and I'll get better. I mean, I really was thinking that I was still hoping at that point in time that it would be that easy. And I went into the hospital. I was the first person there. I went and I did what was probably a fairly routine MRI, though it was new for me and I was shocked at the craziness of the machine that shook me like I was sitting in a jackhammer. Um, but it was a probably fairly normal experience. And I got up and started to leave. And she said, okay, thanks. You know, your doctor will call you in a few days and just wait to hear from him. And I thought that was going to be it. So I went back to the locker room. I started gathering my belongings. And within moments, 
this same radiology tech ran back in and she said, because you are the first patient of the day, the radiologist is actually looking at your scans live as they come in. And he's not sure, but he thinks he sees something, a spot on your brain. Would you be willing to stay? As if you're going to go home after they say that to you. No, I think I'll just, I would, no, I don't have time for this right now. I'll just come back later. Oh my gosh, Jody. Okay, so, so more tests. She actually pulled me in and showed me on the computer what he wanted to look at. Now, I had never seen an MRI of my brain or any other brain, and I may as well have been looking at an ultrasound of a baby for all sure. I know. But when she did point it out and said, right here, and kind of circled an area on the screen, even I could see it. I was like, oh, there is something there. And honest to goodness, I was relieved. I was not devastated. I was relieved. I thought, oh, see, here we go. Here's an answer. This is a solution. There's something there. Now we're going to figure it out. We're going to take care of it. And life is going to return to the white picket fence. So when I got in the MRI the second time, I was actually fairly calm. Even though I didn't know what a spot on my brain meant, I really believed it meant a solution. And then that nice little facade came crashing down the moment that they pulled me out of the MRI machine. And the kind MRI tech leaned down to help me up. And as she undid the restraints that was keeping me down on the table, she looked at me and she said, There is definitely something there. Go home and call your doctor immediately. Wow. And then she threw her arms around me and gave me a hug and said, and good luck to you. Ugh, that is... And I thought, what in the world? So how long did you wait and what did the doctor finally say when you were given more than just, I'm sorry, good luck? Well, thank heavens I didn't wait days or weeks. But I can't even tell you how long the hours felt on that particular day. Yeah. Uh, oh, even I'm the sure. drive home from the hospital and thinking, oh, my gosh, what do I say to my husband? How do I, like, I didn't know enough to be able to know really what to tell him. But the little information I had and the look and tone in the voice of the MRI tech told me that it was something big. But still, I had no words at that point in time. So the gist of it was we had to wait and talk to the doctor. But inside, I was just reeling. And the thing that I can now talk about, because I've now come to a a place of peace with it, my husband said, well, you know, we don't know until we hear from the doctor. So he's like, so I'm going to head to work. And, you know, when you talk to the doctor, give me a call. (sighs) Which I'm sure was exactly what he felt like he needed to do. But it was a little bit devastating to me because inside I was in turmoil and I was, I didn't know what to do and I didn't understand what was going on. And I, I certainly felt like I couldn't take care of my family. And yet here I was at home. In fact, it was spring break. It was the Friday before Easter Sunday. So my kids were home from school. They were playing and laughing. And I was sitting here waiting for the world to crash down around me, just waiting for this phone call. And I kept calling the doctor's office. I kept calling the doctor's office and they kept saying, he's in with the patient. He's in with the patient. He'll call you when he can. 
but I've never been one of those patient people <laughs> who, who likes to wait. I'm one of those that walks up to a crosswalk sign and I keep pressing that dang button. Because that's going to make it go faster. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Even though it doesn't make it go faster, I keep pressing thinking, do you know that I'm here? Do you know that I'm here? I'm going to keep pressing so you know that I'm here. And that's how I felt that day. And so about six hours later, when the doctor did call me, he said, I received the radiologist report and I'm sorry, Mrs. Brown, I don't even know what to say, but it appears there is a mass or a tumor between your right auditory canal and your brainstem. And he started telling the information so quickly but he was using terms I didn't know. So I grabbed a notebook. I started writing down the different words that he was saying. You know, he gave me a certain number of millimeters and said things like glioma and schwannoma and things that just didn't mean anything to me. So yeah. I wrote it down as quickly as I could. Um, and then he said, we've already called uh, a neurosurgeon. And I talked to him and explained the situation. And he's cleared his schedule. And we have an appointment for you. Monday morning at eight. Oh but my you never goodness. know. You always know it's never good news if they clear the schedule to fit you in that fast. That well, means they I see the urgency. Yeah. This Monday morning at eight, like three days from now. Yes. He's cleared his schedule and he'll see you first thing. And that was another indication to me that just how okay, serious. Hey, this yeah. is something big. It may not be an easy little walk in the park. So, well, and I know just from knowing you now, which is all these years later that, that surgery wasn't at all the end of this journey. Oh no! So tell us, tell tell us where that surgery went, and then where it where it took you from there. Well, that ended up being just the beginning. And actually, before the surgery, one of the difficult parts was that the first several doctors I went to actually told me that I was inoperable. That because of the location of the tumor, they would not be able to operate, and that there was really nothing that they could do that because of the location, they couldn't do any radiation because they didn't know what it was. They couldn't do any chemo. It was too dangerous even to biopsy. And literally an entire healthcare system said, we're sorry. That's wow. It. We're sorry. So what, and, ha- what, what was the final, how did, where do you go from there? That's exactly the question that we asked. And our only thought was, well, we can't take that and stop. You can't take that kind of devastating news and just not do anything. We said, okay, well, we're going to get more opinions. We're going to go to more doctors. We're going to ask more people. And my family has a very wide and extensive network um, after having lived on both U.S. coasts. And then my parents at the time were in Hawaii. My dad was the CEO of uh, the Polynesian Cultural Center, which the long and short of it is they knew literally thousands of people throughout the world. And Unbeknownst to me, my dad had actually taken part of my story. He wrote it down in an email, sent it out to his network of 11,000 friends and said, if anyone knows a solution, if you know a doctor, if you have connections, let us know. So one of the amazing miracles and one of the reasons that we were okay and survived all of it is because the network came to our rescue. And as people started finding out, they just jumped in and came with so much love and so many potential ideas and solutions. And I know someone at Johns Hopkins. I know someone at Mayo Clinic. And we started literally sending scans of my head around the world so that people could give ideas and suggestions and make recommendations and see if we could find a solution. 
And our eventual solution came when someone that my husband worked with came up to him one day at work and said, hey, I've heard about what's going on with your wife. And my husband and I, we have these best friends, and he's a neurosurgeon. And if it's okay with you, you know, I called him and said, would he be willing to see you and your wife? And he said, he will see your wife on Friday during his lunch break. He's at the uh, University of Utah, the Huntsman Cancer Center, and he said he'd be willing to see your wife. So my husband gratefully said, yes, we'll take the appointment. Two days later, we showed up in the Neurosciences Center at the U and found out he had a four to six month wait for an appointment. But because he got a call from a friend, we were in in two days. And unlike every other doctor's appointment until then, this man looked at my scans quietly, carefully, thoughtfully, and then looked at us and said, I think I can do this. And he was the one who made my inoperable diagnosis operable and changed the whole course of our lives by saying, yes, I can do this. Wow. Amazing. So what was that surgery? What did it entail? Oh, that, that was fun. <laughs> so they planned surgery. They had several different surgeons involved, and they were going to do what they call a mid-fossa approach, which means cutting kind of the, the middle top of my head and going in to the brainstem from that approach. And the goal was to remove as much of the tumor as they could to both test it and just to get it the heck out of there mm-hmm. and uh, not touch the brainstem. Those were the goals, is to keep the things that were good, good, and get the bad tissue or mass out. So I went into the hospital for what was supposed to be one surgery in five days uh, recovering. But that one surgery in five days turned into three brain surgeries, 35 days in and out of neurocritical care, a cerebral spinal fluid leak, facial paralysis, a brain infection, a condition called pneumocephalus, and a bigger fight for my life than I had ever been in. Wow. Okay, Jody, I don't even know where to go with that list you just made because most people on this planet haven't faced any one of those things, let alone the entire list that you just so casually threw out as, you know, this list of things you experienced. And I happen to know because I didn't know you during any of that. I know the surgeries and things you're facing now all these years later. There is a lot to this story. So I think what we'll do, um, we're going to have you tell us after this next break, Tell us a little how you survived this first round of surgeries and setbacks. And then if you're okay, we are going to do part two and have our next episode be with you going into kind of those next steps. There is just so much here on this 12 or 13 year journey. There's no way we'll get it into just this first episode. So we'll be right back. Right, Jody, what did survival look like from that list of, I can't even remember all the things you said, and I didn't even understand all the medical words, but a lot of things came from that supposed quick surgery Monday morning. Well, and a five-day recovery wasn't. becomes yeah. 35 days. What happens In to your family? Yeah. and Your job. I, I imagine you don't have any say over any of that. Your family just has to, your husband has to just figure Step it out. In. Yeah. What did the resilience Everything. look like after that initial round of hospitalizations and surgeries? 
well, everything that we knew was stripped away from us. And the five-day calendar I had created for my mom who came and stayed with my family and for my neighborhood friends who were going to, you know, take my kids to piano practices and soccer practices, it all of a sudden became woefully inadequate. And yet I was not in a position to do anything to contribute to helping. I was simply You were just not available. Yeah. I was not available in any way shape or form. I'm sure you weren't even and conscious at this point, really. I mean, able to there, communicate much. Yes. I was in and out of consciousness. And every time I came to, I just kept wondering what was going on because we had prepared all of us for the fact that, okay, my head is going to be shaved. I'm going to have staples. We prepared for the surgery. We really had no idea that I was going to have so many complications. And in fact, now I can tell you that going into it, you know, you have to sign your life away when you go in for one of these kinds of procedures. And they showed us a list of all of the potential complications and said, any one of these things is possible. And I looked at the list and said to my husband, well, I can't imagine that any of that is in store for us. I think our fight is just getting rid of this tumor. <laughs> I actually said but those you're words. an overachiever and went for everything <laughs> on the list. <laughs> Way to go, Jody. I went, I went for all of it. I got in every line and said, sign me up. And so the realization, the coming to, the literally coming to from the surgery and realizing that some things were going on with my body was a really, really hard realization to come to. It was really difficult and it was difficult also because they didn't come right out and say it in the beginning. Or that's not true. They did come out and say it. But because of my in and out of consciousness state, I hadn't grasped it. And so every time I woke up, I was rediscovering for the first time that, oh, my gosh, my face is paralyzed. I cannot close my eye. I cannot hold food in my mouth. My speech was slurred. I couldn't chew or swallow well and I couldn't see well out of my eye. Well, but very clearly out, one half, right? One eye, yes, not both. One very part clearly of your face. The side, very clearly it was the right side. It was the side where they okay. had gone in and done the surgery. And it took a long time for me physically and mentally to grasp what was going on. And in the beginning, they also hoped that that would be short-lived. They hoped that it sure. was just residual you know, from swelling surgery. and residual and that it would get better. And, and the first diagnosis, they said, hopefully it will be days. And then after a little while, it was, well, it should only last for a few weeks. And then, you know, maybe it'll last for a few months, but I don't think that anyone anticipated it would be such a long-term issue. And because we believed it to be temporary, I really just thought, all right, well, I can get through anything that I know is going to come to an end. So I looked at it as, we just got to get through this. We just got to get through this. The tumor, or at least a chunk of it, is gone. This is just another step that I have to take to get back home to my kids. And so that was how I started living day to day in the hospital. Uh, it was probably the third day in the hospital when I really started to attempt, you know, they wanted me to, all right, let's get you up. Let's try and get you showered or, or, you know, here, let's take you over to the bathroom. That when I would get up or even sit up instead of from a laying down position, I realized that there was fluid dripping out of my nose. And I thought, well, that sounds stupid. Why would I tell the doctor I have a runny nose? <laughs> But it was weird to me. It didn't feel like a normal runny nose. So when the doctor came in and was asking how I was doing, I just mentioned, I don't know if this is important, but every time I sit up, I feel like my nose is running. 
and my nose is dripping and I have to grab a tissue. And he said, do you get an increase in your pain when that happens? And I thought about it and I thought, oh, yes, I definitely do. But I just figured it was because I was always in the process of sitting up and moving and that maybe it jolted things around. That that was when we found out I had a cerebrospinal fluid leak. And the spinal fluid that is in your brain, that cushions your brain and goes up and down your spinal column, was actually leaking out of my nose and dripping down the back of my throat every oh time I would gosh. move or sit up. So it meant that somewhere in my brain, when they had gone in and done surgery, there was some small hole that allowed this fluid to leak out. Which means and they have it, to go back in. Which means either they have to go back in or sometimes it can seal itself over a period oh, of time. Okay. So more the waiting. Difficult, the very difficult thing is it is excruciating. And the only quote unquote temporary solution is you have to lie completely flat and still so that the fluid is not leaking, physically leaking physically out. Physically coming down, yeah. And they had to do what's called a lumbar puncture where they put a giant needle in my back and then would try to drain some of the spinal fluid to test it and see if that was indeed what was leaking and to see if there were other problems going on in my body. Uh, and that was one of the issues. <laughs> so what really it came down to was every day in the hospital was a new challenge and a daily fight for my life. And after just the first few days, all I could think of was I need to see my tiny humans. Where are my kids? I need to be able to give them hugs and loves and tell them that mom is still here. And, and yet my family was nervous to bring my kids in because of the physical changes and because of my very decreased state. So I will never forget the first day that my kids were able to come and visit me in the hospital. And they had been prepared for mom's shaved head and the staples and the bandages. But none of us were prepared for the other changes. None of us were prepared for the fact that my face was going to be paralyzed. And that that, to them, changed my appearance so much that to some of my kids, I was nearly unrecognizable. And when they came in, my older kids came over and lovingly embraced me. But it was very clear from the looks on their faces that they were very apprehensive, that there was fear, there were nerves, there was a lot of anxiety. Uh, my four-year-old <laughs> was my saving grace. He did not have a filter. <laughs> Which <laughs> they don't, know. sure. <laughs> he didn't know he should be afraid. He just bounded right up and gave me hugs and kisses and said, whoa, what is wrong with your eye? <laughs> you, oh. Your eye is not closing. Like, can't you shut your eye? Should I get you some tape so that we can close? Like, he just wanted to know what he could do to help his mama. And, my gosh, thank goodness that that little boy could express that kind of unconditional love to me at the time because I needed it desperately. Yeah. Uh, my two-year-old wouldn't come near me. He just clung onto his dad's leg and stayed on the other side of the room. He would not come over. And that was so devastating to me. I just couldn't imagine. Like, if my kids don't know it's me, I knew that that was a big indication that my life was really, really changed, that I was 
a different person. But even though inside I still felt like me and I still felt like Jody, if my little ones couldn't walk up and give me a hug and love and know that they were safe in mom's arms, then that was very telling to me about perhaps what the rest of the world would think. Finally, by the end of that visit, which was actually very short, it was only probably 20 to 30 minutes, my husband was able to carry our two-year-old son over and get him to at least kind of get a hug from mom before they walked out the door. He realized how exhausting it was for me and the kids. And when they walked out the door, I just broke down and started sobbing and realized that my life was no longer the same. And that, it feels like that was repeated over and over again with each new challenge and each new situation. So to answer your question of how do you survive, I would say all you can do is get through one minute at a time. And I really had to try and keep my head in the best place possible. Mentally, I had to try and focus on the good things and try and focus on getting better and being able to get home to see those kids again and be that mom and wife that I wanted to be. And that was made easier by this wonderful family and support group that I had. My dad flew in from Hawaii to be there with me during the surgery. Of course, we thought it was going to be a five days, so he planned a a week-long trip. He ended up sitting by my bedside for 28 days while I was in recovery and while we were trying to fix all of these things. He came every single day and got there first thing in the morning and would stay with me all day long. And then when my husband could come kind of at the end of the day or on lunch break, my dad might take a few minute break to go out and, you know, go grab something to eat. Uh, Or at the end of the day, he would finally go home and, you know, shower and go to sleep and get up and do it all over again. But my family really made sure that I had a protector that was there as well as someone that could advocate for me because I was unconscious so much of the time. And they really looked out for me. And what I can say is that at the times where I didn't have the strength to keep going for myself, it was the love and the small acts of kindness and care that kept me going. It was knowing that all of these other people out there were fighting for me and hoping for me and praying for me. That was what kept me going for weeks and weeks was all of the little things. It was every text message, every note that someone wrote on a blog, every email, every card, every flower received. Every time I'd hear that someone had shown up at our house with something for the kids or took them to an activity, those were the things that kept me hanging on, knowing that there were so many people out there who were helping us and fighting with us every step of the way. Oh, Jody, this is, I'm so glad that we're going to be able to have another uh, episode with you because I can just tell there's still so much to the story and so much to learn. Thank you. Thank you for walking us through this first part of your journey. Thank you for being so real and so vulnerable with us to let us know these these struggles and these challenges. And yet, thank you for starting the podcast by saying I'm fabulous. Like half of, <laughs> half of your face still doesn't fully function after what was supposed to maybe be a couple days residual surgery result of a you know paralyzed face. And you're still fabulous. Thank you for teaching us that resilience is about the kindness and care that other people show. Thank you for teaching us that it's fighting and 
leaning on those around you. I love that you said your father and your husband were like your protector and your advocate and how desperately we all need those, uh, particularly in, in the medical field with things that are just so complicated and so out of your own physical and mental control with, with you in that state. We're grateful for you for joining us today. We're grateful for our listeners for joining on this first half. We invite you all to listen to the next episode and get the rest of the story. And we also invite all of you listening to think about whether or not you might have a story you're willing to share with us about something you've been through that has taught you resilience and tips and tricks to be able to still be fabulous no matter what you've been through. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, or you can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.